This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. The Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. Chapters 13 through 15. Two weeks of very hard work and little sleep passed as Green learned the duties of a topsailman. He hated to go aloft, but he found that being up so high had its advantages. It gave him a chance to catch a few winks now and then. There were many crow's nests where musketmen were stationed during a fight. Green would slip down into one of these and go to sleep at once. His foster son, Grizz Quetter, would stand watch for him, waking him if the foretop captain was coming through the rigging toward them. One afternoon, Grizz's whistle startled Green out of a sound sleep. However, the captain stopped to give another sailor a lecture. Unable to go back to sleep, Green watched a herd of hoobers take to their hoofs at the approach of the bird. These diminutive equines, beautiful with their orange bodies and black or white manes and fetlock, sometimes formed immense herds that must have numbered in the hundreds of thousands. So thick were they that they looked like a bobbing sea of flashing heads and gleaming hoofs stretching clear to the horizon. To stretch to the horizon was something on this planet. The plain was the flattest green had ever seen. He could scarcely believe that it ran unbroken for thousands of miles. But it did, and from his high point of view he could see in a vast circle. It was a beautiful sight. The grass itself was tall and thick-bodied, about two feet high and a sixteenth of an inch through. It was bright green, brighter than earthly grass, almost shiny. During the rainy season, he was told, it would blossom with many tiny white and red flowers and give a pleasing perfume. Now, as Green watched, something happened that startled him. Abruptly, as if a monster mowing machine had come along the day before, the high grass ended and a lawn began. The new grass seemed to be only an inch high, and the lawn stretched at least a mile wide and as far ahead of the bird as he could see. "'What do you think of that?' he asked Amra's son. Grizz Quetter shrugged. "'I don't know. The sailors say that it's done by the Wooroo, an animal the size of a ship, that only comes out at night. It eats grass, but it has the nasty temper of a dire dog, and will attack and smash a roller as if it were made of cardboard.' "'Do you believe that?' Green said, watching him closely." Grizz Quetter was an intelligent lad, in whom he hoped to plant a few seeds of skepticism. Perhaps some day those seeds might flower into the beginnings of science. I don't know if the story is true or not. It's possible, but I've met nobody who has ever seen a wooroo. And if it comes out only at night, where does it hide during the daytime? There's no hole in the ground large enough to conceal it. Very good, said Green, smiling. Happily, Grizz Quetter smiled back. He worshipped his foster father and nursed every bit of affection or compliment he got from him. Keep that open mind, said Green. Neither believe nor disbelieve until you have solid evidence one way or another. And keep on remembering that new evidence may come up that will disprove the old and firmly established. He smiled wryly. I could use some of my own advice. I, for instance 
had at one time absolutely refused to put any credence in what I had seen with my own eyes. I put the story down as merely another idle story of those who sailed the grassy seas. But I'm beginning to wonder if perhaps there couldn't be an animal of some kind like the Wuru. Both were silent for a while as they watched the animals race off like living orange rivers. Overhead, the birds wheeled in their hundreds of thousands of numbers. They, too, were beautiful, and even more colorful than the Hoobers. Occasionally, one lit in the rigging in a burst of dazzling feathers and a fury of melodious song, or raucous screeches. "'Look,' said the boy, eagerly pointing, "'a grass cat. He's been hiding, waiting to catch a Hoober, and now he's afraid he'll be trampled to death by them.' Green's gaze followed the other's finger. He saw the long-legged, tiger-striped body loping desperately ahead of the thundering hoofs. It was completely closed in a pocket of the orange-maned beasts. Even as Green saw him, the sides of the pocket collapsed, and the big cat disappeared from sight. If he remained alive, he would do so through a miracle. Suddenly, Gris Quetter cried, "'Gods!' "'What's the matter?' cried Green. "'On the horizon!' A sail! It's shaped like a ving sail! Others saw it, too. The ship rang with shouts. A trumpeter blew battle stations. Moran's voice rose above the others as he bellowed through a megaphone. Chaos dissolved into order and purpose as everybody went to his appointed place. The animals, children, and pregnant women were marshaled into the hold. The gun crews began unloading barrels of powder with a crane from a hatch. Musket men swarmed up the rigging. The entire top-mast crew tumbled aloft and took their places. As Green was already in his, he had some leisure to observe the whole outlay of preparations for fight. He watched Amra hurriedly give her children a kiss, make sure they'd all gone below, then begin tearing up strips of cloth for bandages and of wadding for the muskets. Once she looked up and waved at him before turning back to her task. He waved back and got a severe reprimand from the top captain for breaking discipline. An extra watch for you, Green, after this is over. The Earthman groaned and wished that the martinet would fall off and break every bone in his body, if he lost any more sleep. The day wore on as the strange ship came closer. Another sail appeared behind it, and the crew grew even tenser. From all appearances, they were being pursued by vings. Vings usually went in pairs. Then there was the shape of the sails, which were narrower at the bottom than at top. And there was the long, low, streamlined hull, and the over-large wheels. Nevertheless, discipline was somewhat relaxed for a time. The pets and children were allowed to come up, and meals were prepared by the women. Even when the swifter craft came close enough so that the color of the sails was seen to be scarlet, thereby confirming their suspicions of the stranger's identity, battle stations weren't called. Miran estimated that by the time the Vings were within cannon range, night would fall. That is what they hate and we love, he said, pacing back and forth, fingering his nose ring and blinking nervously his one good eye. It'll be an hour before the big moon comes up. Not only that, it looks as though clouds may arise. See? he cried to the first mate. By Minerox, is that not a wisp I detect in the northeast quarter? By all the gods, I believe it is, said the mate, peering upward, seeing nothing but clear sky, 
but hoping that wishing would make the clouds come true. Ah, Menorox is good to his favorite worshipper, said Moran. He that loves thee shall profit. Book of the True Gods, chapter 10, verse 8. And Menorox knows I love him with compound interest. Yes, that he does, said the mate. But what is your plan? As soon as the last glow of the sun disappears completely from the horizon, so our silhouette won't be revealed, we'll swing around and cut across their direct path of advance. We know that they'll be traveling fairly close together, hoping to catch up with us and blast us with crossfire. Well, we'll give them a chance, but we'll be gone before they can seize it. We'll go right between them in the dark and fire on both. By the time they're ready to reply, we'll have slipped on by. And then, he whooped, slapping at his fat thigh, they'll probably cannonade each other to flinders, each thinking the other is us. Hoo, hoo, hoo! had better be with us, said the mate, paling. It'll take damn tight calculating and more than a bit of luck. We'll be going by dead reckoning. Not until we're almost on them will we see them. And if we're headed straight at them, it'll be too late to avoid a collision. Warum, smash, boom. We're done for. That's very true. But we're done for if we don't pull some trick like that. They'll have caught us by dawn. They can outmaneuver us. And they've more combined gunfire. And though we'll fight like grass cats, we'll go down. You know what'll happen then. The Vings don't take prisoners unless they're at the end of a cruise and going into port. We should have accepted the Duke's offer of convoy of frigates, muttered the mate. Even one would have been enough to make the odds favor us. What? And lose half the profits of this voyage because we have to pay that robber Duke for the use of his warships? Have you lost your mind, mate? If I have, I'm not the only one, said the mate, turning into the wind so his words were lost but the helmsman heard him and reported the conversation later. In five minutes, it was all over the ship. Sure, he's greedy guts himself, the crew said. But then, we're his relatives. We know the value of a penny. And isn't that fat old darling the daring one, though? Who but a captain of the clan Ephanikin would think of such a trick, and carry it through, too? And if he's such a money-grubber, why then wouldn't he be afraid to risk his vessel on cargo, not to mention his own precious blood, not to mention the even more precious blood of his relatives. No, Moran may be one-eyed and big-bellied and short of temper and wind, but he's the man to hold down the foredeck. Brother, dip me another glass from that barrel and let's toast again the cool courage and hot avariciousness of Captain Moran, Master Merchant. Grizzoot, the plump little harpist with the effeminate manners, took his harp and began singing the song the clan loved the most, the story of how they, a hill tribe, had come down to the plains a generation ago, and how there they had crept into the windbreak of the city of Chuttlesage and stolen a great windroller, and how they had ever since been men of the grassy seas, of the vast flat exertimer, and had sailed their stolen craft until it was destroyed in a great battle with a whole Krinkensprunger fleet and how they had boarded a ship of the fleet, and slain all the men, and taken the women prisoners, and sailed off with the ship right through the astounded fleet. And how they had taken the women as slaves, and bred children, and how the Ephanikin blood was now half Krinkensprunger, 
and that was where they got their blue eyes. And how the clan now owned three big merchant ships, or had until two years ago when the other two rolled over the green horizon during the month of the oak and were never heard of again. But they'd come back some day with strange tales and a hold brimming with jewels. And how the clan now sailed under the mighty, grasping, shrewd, lucky religious man, Miran. Whatever else you could say about Grizzut, you could not deny that he had a fine baritone. Green, listening to his voice rise from the deck far below, could vision the rise and fall and rise again of these people, and could appreciate why they were so arrogant and close-fisted and suspicious and brave. Indeed, if he had been born on this planet, he could have wanted no finer, more romantic, gypsyish life than that of a sailor on a windroller. Provided, that is, that he could get plenty of sleep. The boom of a cannon disturbed his reverie. He looked up just in time to see the ball appear at the end of its arc and flash by him. It was not enough to scare him, but watching it plow into the ground about twenty feet away from the starboard steering wheel made him realize what damage one lucky shot could do. However, the Ving did not try again. He was a canny pirate who knew better than to throw away ammunition. Doubtless he was hoping to panic the merchantman into a frenzy of replies, powder-wasting and useless. Useless because the sun set just then, and in a few minutes dusk was gone and darkness was all around them. Moran didn't even bother to tell his men to hold fire, since they wouldn't have dreamed of touching off the cannon until he gave the word. Instead, he repeated that no light should be shown, and that the children must go below decks and must be kept quiet. No one was to make a noise. Then, casting one last glance at the positions of the pursuing craft, now rapidly dissolving into the night, he estimated the direction and strength of the wind. It was as it had been the day they set sail, an east wind, dead astern, a good wind, pushing them along at eighteen miles an hour. Moran spoke in a soft voice to the first mate and the other officers, and they disappeared into the darkness shrouding the decks. They were giving prearranged orders, not by the customary bellowing through a megaphone, but by low voices and touches. While they directed the crew, Moran stood with bare feet upon the foredeck. He held a half-crouching posture and acted as if he were detecting the moves of the invisible sailors by the vibrations of their activities running through the wood of the decks and the spars and the masts and up to his feet. Moran was a fat nerve center that gathered in all the unspoken messages scattered everywhere throughout the body of the bird. He seemed to know exactly what he was doing, and if he hesitated or doubted because of the solid blackness around him, he gave the helmsman no sign. His voice was firm. Hold it steady. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now, swing her hard to port. Hold her, hold her. To Green, high up on the topmost spar of the foremast, the turning about seemed an awful and unnatural deed. He could feel the hull, and with it his mast, of course, leaning over and over until his senses told him that they must inevitably capsize and send him crashing to the ground. But his senses lied, for though he seemed to fall forever, the time came when the journey back toward an upright position began. 
then he was sure he would keep falling the other way, forever. Suddenly the sails fluttered. The vessel had come into the dead spot, where there was no wind acting upon her canvas. Then, as her original impetus kept her going, the canvas boomed, seeming to his straining and oversensitive ears like cannon-firing. This time the wind was catching her from what was for her a completely unnatural direction, from dead ahead. As a result, the sails filled out backwards, and their middle portions pressed against the masts. The roller came almost to a stop at once. The rigging groaned, and the masts themselves creaked loudly. Then they were bending backwards, while the sailors clinging to them in the darkness swore under their breaths and clamped down desperately on their handholds. "'Gods,' said Green, "'what is he doing?' "'Quiet,' said a nearby man, the foretop captain. "'Moran is going to run her backwards.' Green gasped. But he made no further comment, trying to visualize what a strange sight the bird of fortune must be, and wishing it were daylight so he could see her. He sympathized with the helmsman, who had to act against their entire training. It was a bad enough strain for them to try to sail blindly between two vessels, but to roll in reverse? They would have to put the helm to port when their reflexes cried out to them to put it to starboard, and vice versa. And no doubt Moran was aware of this, and was warning them about it every few seconds. Green began to see what was happening. By now the bird was rolling on her former course, but at a reduced rate because the sails, bellying against their masts, would not offer as much surface to the wind. Therefore the Ving vessels would by now be almost upon them, since the merchant ship had lost much ground in her maneuver. In one or two minutes the Ving would overtake them, would for a short while ride side by side with them, then would pass. Provided, of course, that Morant had estimated correctly his speed and rate of curve in turning. Otherwise, they might even now expect a crash from the foredeck as the bow of the Ving caught them. "'Oh, Boax Otter,' prayed the foretop captain, "'steer us right, else you lose your most devout worshipper, Miran.' Boax Otter, Green recalled, was the god of madness. Suddenly a hand gripped Green's shoulder. It was the captain of the foretop. "'Don't you see them?' he said softly. They're a blacker black than the night. Green strained his eyes. Was it his imagination, or did he actually see something moving to his right? And another something, the hint of a hint, moving to his left. Whatever it was, roller or illusion, Moran must have seen it also. His voice shattered the night into a thousand pieces, and it was never the same again. Cannoneers! Fire! Suddenly it was as if fireflies had been in hiding and had swarmed out at his command. All along the rails little lights appeared. Green was startled, even though he knew that the punks had been concealed beneath baskets so that the vings would have no warning at all. Then the fireflies became long glowing worms as the fuses took flame. Then there was a great roar and the ship rocked. Iron demons belched flame. No sooner done than musketry broke out like a hot rash all over the ship. Green himself was part of this, blazing away at the vessel momentarily and dimly revealed by the light of the cannon fire. 
Darkness fell, but silence was gone. The men cheered. The decks trembled as the big wooden trains holding the cannon were run back to the ports from which they'd recoiled. As for the pirates, there was no answering fire. Not at first. They must have been taken completely by surprise. Moran shouted again. Again the big guns roared. Green, reloading his musket, found that he was bracing himself against a tendency to lean to the right. It was a few seconds before he could comprehend that the bird was turning in that direction, even though it was still going backwards. "'Why is he doing that?' he shouted. "'Fool, we can't roll up the sails, stop, then set sail again. We'd be right where we started, sailing backwards. We have to turn while we have momentum, and how better to do that than reverse our maneuver. We'll swing around until we're headed in our original direction.' Green understood now. The Vings had passed them, therefore they were in no danger of collision with them. And they couldn't continue sailing backwards all night. The thing to do now would be to cut off at an angle, so that at daybreak they'd be far from the pirates. At that moment, cannon fire broke out to their left. The men aboard the bird refrained from cheering only because of Moran's threats to maroon them on the plane if they did anything to reveal their position. Nevertheless, they all bared their teeth in silent laughter. Crafty old Moran had sprung his best trap. As he'd hoped, the two pirates, unaware that their attacker was now behind them, were shooting each other. "'Let them bang away until they blow each other sky high,' chortled the foretop master. "'Ah, Moran, what a tale we'll have to tell in the taverns when we get to port!' For five minutes, the intermittent flashes and bellows told that the Vings were still hammering away. Then the dark took hold again. Apparently, the two had either recognized each other, or else had decided that night fighting was a bad business and had steered away from each other. If this last was true, then they wouldn't be much to fear, for one Ving couldn't attack the merchant by itself. The clouds broke, and the big and little moons spread brightness everywhere. The pirate vessels were not in sight. Nor were they seen when dawn broke. There was sail half a mile away, but this alarmed no one except the untutored green, because they recognized its shape as a sister. It was a merchant from the nearby city of Dem, of the dukedom of Potsahidi. Green was glad. They could sail with it. Safety in numbers. But no. Moran, after hailing it and finding that it was also going to Astoria, ordered every bit of canvas crowded on in an effort to race away from it. "'Is he crazy?' groaned Green to a sailor. "'Like a Zilmar,' replied the sailor, referring to a fox-like animal that dwelt in the hills. "'We must get to Astoria first if we are to realize the full value of our cargo.' "'Utter feather-brained folly,' snarled Green." That ship doesn't carry live fish. It can't possibly compete with us. No, but we've got other things to sell. Besides, it's in Moran's blood. If he saw another merchant pass him, he'd come down sick. Green threw his hands into the air and rolled his eyes in despair. Then he went back to work. There was much to do yet before he'd be allowed to sleep. The days and nights passed in the hard routine of his labor, 
and the alarms and excursions that occasionally broke up the routine. Now and then the gig was launched, while the roller was at full speed, and it sped away under the power of its white fore-and-aft sail. It would be loaded with hunters, who would chase a huber or deer or pygmy hog until it became exhausted, then would shoot the tired animal. They always brought back plenty of fresh meat. As for water, the catch tanks on the decks were full because it rained at least half an hour every noon and dusk. Green wondered at the regularity and promptness of these showers. The clouds would appear at twelve, and it would rain for thirty to sixty minutes. Then the sky would clear again. It was all very nice, but it was also very puzzling. Sometimes he was allowed to try target practice from the crow's nest, on the grass cats or the huge dire dogs. These latter ran in packs of half a dozen to twenty, and would often pace the bird, howling and growling and sometimes running between the wheels. The sailors had quite a few tales of what they did to people who fell overboard or were wrecked on the plains. Green shuddered and went back to his target practice. Though he ordinarily was against shooting animals just for the fun of it, he had no compunction about putting a ball through these wolfish-looking creatures. Ever since he'd been tormented by Alzo, he'd hated dogs with a passion unbecoming to a civilized man. Of course, the fact that every canine on the planet instinctively loathed him because of his Earthman odor and did his best to sink his teeth into him strengthened Green's reaction. His legs were always healing from bites of the pets aboard. Often the roller would cruise through the grass tall as a man's knee. Then suddenly it would pass onto one of those tremendous lawns which seemed so well kept. Green had never ceased puzzling about them, but all he could get from anyone was one or more variations of the fable of the Wooroo, the herbivore bigger than two ships put together. One day they passed a wreck. Its burned hulk lay sideways on the ground, and here and there bones gleamed in the sun. Green expressed surprise that the masts, wheels, and cannon were gone. He was told that those had been taken away by the savages who roamed the plains. They used the wheels for their own craft, which are really nothing but large sailing platforms, land rafts, you might say, Amra told him. On these they pitched their tents and their fireplaces, and from them they go forth to hunt. Some of them, however, disdain platforms and make their homes upon the roaming islands. Green smiled, but said nothing about the fairy story, because disbelief excited these people, even Amra. You will not see many wrecks, she continued, not because there aren't many, for there are. Out of every ten rollers that leave for distant breaks, you can expect only six to get back. That few? I'm amazed that with such a casualty ratio you could get anybody to risk his fortune and life. You forget that he who comes back is many times richer than when he sailed away. Look at Moran. He is taxed heavily at every port of call. He is taxed even more heavily in his home port. And he has to split with the clansmen, though he does get a tenth of the profit of every cargo. Despite this, he is the richest man in Quats, richer even than the duke. Yes, but a man is a fool to take risks like these just for the remote chance of a fortune, he protested. Then he stopped. After all, for what other reason had the Norsemen gone to America 
and Columbus to the West Indies? Or why were so many hundreds of thousands of Earthmen daring the perils of interstellar space? What about himself, for instance? He'd left a stable and well-paying job on Earth as a specialist in raising seed crops to go to Pushover, a planet of the Albirio. He'd expected to make his fortune there after two years of not-too-hard work and then retire. If only that accident hadn't happened. Of course, some of the pioneers weren't driven by the profit motive. There was such a thing as love of adventure. Not a pure love, however. Even the most adventurous saw El Dorado gleaming somewhere in the wilds. Greed conquered more frontiers than curiosity. You'd think the ruins of rollers would not be rare, even if these plains are vast, said Amra, breaking in on his reflections. But the savages and pirates must salvage them as fast as they're made. Your pardon, mother, for interrupting, said Grizzquetter. I heard a sailor, Zub, remark on that very thing just the other day. He said that he once saw a roller that had been gutted by pirates, he supposed. It was three days' journey out of Yeshkeavach, the city of Quartz in the far north. He said the roller was a week there, then returned on the same route. But when they came to where the wreck had been, it was gone, every bit of it. Even the bones of the dead sailors were missing and he said that that reminded him of a story his father had told him when he was young. He said his father told him that his ship had once almost run into a huge uncharted hole in the plain. It was big, at least two hundred feet across, and earth had been piled up outside, like the crater of a volcano. At first that was what they thought it was, a volcano just beginning, even though they'd never heard of such a thing on the Exertimer. Then they met a ship whose men had seen the hole made. It was caused, they said, by a mighty falling star. A meteor, commented Green. And it had dug that great hole. Well, that was as good an explanation as any. But the amazing thing was that when they came by that very spot a month later, the hole was gone. It was filled up and smoothed out, and grass was growing over it as if nothing had ever broken the skin of the earth. Now, how do you explain that, foster father? There are more things in heaven and earth than ever your philosophies dreamed of, Horatio, Green nonchalantly replied, though he felt as though he wasn't quoting exactly right. Amra and her son blinked. Horatio? Never mind. This sailor said that it was probably the work of the gods, who labors secretly at night, that the plain may stay flat and clean of obstacles, so their true worshippers may sail upon it and profit thereby. Will the wonders of rationalization never cease, said Green. He rose from his pile of furs. Almost time for my watch. He kissed Amra, the maid, the children, and stepped out from the tent. He walked rather carelessly across the deck, absorbed in wondering what the effect would be upon Amra if he told her his true origin. Could she comprehend the concept of other worlds, existing by the hundreds of thousands, yet so distant from each other that a man could walk steadily for a million years and still not get halfway from Earth to this planet of hers? Or would she react automatically, as most of her fellows would do, and think that he must surely be a demon in human disguise? It would be more natural for her to prefer the latter idea. If you looked at it objectively, it was more plausible, 
given her lack of scientific knowledge, much more believable, too. Somebody bumped him. Jarred out of his reverie, he automatically apologized in English. "'Don't curse me in your foreign tongue,' snarled Grizut, the plump little harpist. Esker was standing behind Grizut. He spoke out of the side of his mouth, urging the bard on. "'He thinks he can walk all over you, Grizut, because he insulted your harp once, and you let him get away with it.' Grizut puffed out his cheeks, reddened in the face, and glared. "'It is only because Moran has forbidden duels that I have not plunged my dagger into this son of an isit.' Green looked from one to the other. Obviously, the scene was prearranged, with no good end for him in view. "'Stand aside,' he said haughtily. "'You are interfering with the discipline of the roller. Moran will not like that.' "'Indeed,' said Grizut. "'Do you think Moran cares at all about what happens to you? "'You're a lousy sailor, and it hurts me to have to call you brother. "'In fact, I spit every time I say it to you, brother.' Grizut did just that. Green, who was downwind, felt the fine mist on his legs. He began to get angry. "'Out of my way, or I'll report you to the first mate,' he said firmly, and walked by them. They gave way, but he had an uneasy feeling in the small of his back, as if a knife would plunge into it. Of course, they shouldn't be so foolish, because they would be hamstrung and then dropped off the roller for the crime of cowardice.' But these people were so hot-headed, they were just as likely as not to stab him in a moment of fury. Once on the rope ladder that ran up to the crow's nest, he began to lose the prickly feeling in his back. At that moment, Grizut called out, "'Oh, Green! I had a vision last night, a true vision, because my patron God sent it, and he himself appeared in it. He announced that he would snuff up his nostrils the welcome scent of your blood, spilled all over the deck from your fall. Green paused with one foot on the rail. You tell your god to stay away from me, or I'll punch him in the nose, he called back. There was a gasp from the many people who'd gathered around to listen. Sacrilege, yelled Grizut. Blasphemy, he turned to those around him. Did you hear that? Yes, said Esger, stepping out from the crowd. I heard him, and I am shocked. Men have burned for less. Oh, my patron god, Tenescala, punish this pride-swollen man. Make your dreams come true. Cast him headlong from the mast, and dash him to the deck, and break every bone in his body, so that men may learn that one does not mock the true gods. Takai, murmured the crowd. Amen. Green smiled grimly. He had fallen into their trap and now must be on guard. Plainly, one or both of them would be aloft tonight during the dark hour after sunset, and they'd be content with nothing less than pitching him out over the deck. His death would be considered to have come from the hands of an outraged god. And if Amra should accuse Esker and Grizut, she'd get little justice. As for Moran, the fellow would probably heave a sigh of relief, because he'd be rid of a troublesome fellow who could carry damaging stories of a certain conspiracy to the Duke of Tropat. He climbed up to the crow's nest and settled gloomily to staring off at the horizon. Just before sunset, Gris Quetter came up with a bottle of wine and food in a covered basket. Between bites, Green told the boy of his suspicions. 
Mother has already guessed as much, said the lad. She is a very clever woman indeed, my mother. She has put a curse upon the two if you should come to harm. Very clever. That will do a great deal of good. Thank her for her splendid work while you're picking up my pieces from the deck, will you? To be sure, replied Grizz Quetter, trying hard to keep his sober face from breaking into a grin. And Mother also sent you this. He rolled the handkerchief all the way off the top of the basket. Green's eyes widened. A rocket flare! Yes, Mother says that you are to release it when you hear the bosun's whistle from the deck. Now, why in the world would I do that? Won't I get into tremendous trouble by doing that? I'll be run through the gauntlet a dozen times for that. No, sir, not me. I've seen those poor fellows after the whips were through at them. Mother said for me to tell you that nobody will be able to prove who sent up the flare. Perhaps. It sounds reasonable. But why should I do it? It will light up the whole ship for a minute, and everybody will be able to see that Esker and Grizzut are in the rigging. The whole ship will be in an uproar. Of course, when it is discovered that somebody has stolen two flares from the storeroom, and when a search is conducted, and one flare is found hidden in Esker's trunk, then, well, you'll see. Oh, a beamish boy, chortled Green. Kalu Kale, go tell your mother she's the most marvelous woman on this planet. Though that's not really much of a compliment now that I think of it. Oh, wait a minute. About this bosun's whistle. Now, why should he be warning me to send up a flare? He won't. Mother will be blowing it. She'll be waiting for a signal from me or Azaxu, Grizz Quetter said, referring to his younger brother. We'll be watching Esger and Grizzut, and when they start to climb aloft, we'll notify her. She'll wait until she thinks they're about halfway up, then she'll whistle. That woman has saved my life at least a half a dozen times. What would I do without her? That's what Mother said. She said that she doesn't know why she went after you when you try to run away from her, from us, because she has great pride, and she doesn't have to chase a man to get one. Princes have begged her to come live with them, but she did because she loves you, and a good thing, too. Otherwise, your stupidity would have killed you ten times over by now. Oh, she did, did she? Well, <clears throat> hum, yes, well, thoroughly ashamed of himself, Yet angry at Amra for her estimate of him, Green miserably watched Grizz Quetter climb down the ratlines. During the next half hour, time seemed to coagulate, to thicken and harden around him so that he felt as if he were encased in it. The clouds that always came up after sunset formed, and a light drizzle began. It would last for about an hour, he knew, then the clouds would disappear so swiftly that they would give the impression of being yanked away like a tablecloth by some magician over the horizon. But he'd cram a highly nervous lifetime into those minutes, wondering if perhaps there wouldn't be some unforeseen frustration of Amra's schedule. The first webby drop struck his face, and he wondered if perhaps that wouldn't be what the two would wait for. They'd probably taken the first step up the rigging, but he mustn't expect her whistle for some time yet. If they were clever, they wouldn't climb up directly beneath him, but would go aft, ascend to the top, then climb over to him. It was true that they'd have to pass others, who, like Green, were also stationed aloft on watch. But Esker and Grizzut knew the locations of these. So dark was it, they could pass within touching distance and not be seen or heard. The wind in the rigging, 
the creak of masts, the rumble of the great wheels would drown out any slight noise they might make. The roller did not stop sailing just because the helmsman could not see. The bird followed a well-charted route. Every permanent obstacle along there had been memorized by helmsmen and officers alike. If anything formidable was expected in their path during the dark period, a course would be set to avoid it. The officers on duty would advise the helmsman on their steering by means of an ingenious dial on a notched plate. His sensitive fingers, following its flickerings back and forth, and comparing them with the directional notches, would tell him how close to the course they were keeping. The dial itself was fixed to the needle of a compass beneath it. Green hunched his shoulders beneath his coat and walked around the walls of his nest. He strained his eyes to make out something in the blackness that wrapped around him like a shroud. There was nothing. Nothing at all. No, wait. What was that? A vague outline of a white face? He stared hard until it disappeared. Then he sighed and realized how rigidly he'd been standing there. And, of course, he'd been open to attack from behind all that time. No, not really. If he couldn't see an arm's length away, neither could the other two. But they didn't have to see. They knew the rope so well that they could grope blindfolded to his nest and there feel him out. A touch of a finger, followed by a thrust of steel. That would be all it would take. He was thinking of that when he felt the finger. It poked into his back and held him like a statue for just a second, quivering, paralyzed. Then he gave a hoarse cry and jumped away. He snatched out his dagger and crouched down close to the floor, straining his eyes and ears, trying to detect them. Surely, if they were breathing as hard as he, he couldn't fail to hear them. On the other hand, he realized with a sudden sickishness that they could hear him just as well. Come on, come on, he said soundlessly through clenched teeth. Do something. Make a move so I can pin you, you sons of visits. Perhaps they were doing the same, waiting for him to betray himself. The best thing was to hug the floor, where he was, and hope they'd stumble over him. He kept reaching out in front of him, feeling for the warm mesh of a face. His other hand held his dagger. It was during one of his tentative explorations that he felt the basket where Grizz Quetter had left it. At once, seized with what he thought was an inspiration, he pulled out the flare. Why wait for them to close in on him and butcher him like a hog? He'd send up the flare now, and in the first shock of its glare, he'd attack them. The only trouble was, he'd have to put down his dagger in order to take his flint and steel and tinderbox from his pocket. He hated not to have it ready for thrusting. Solving this problem by putting the dagger between his teeth, he took out his firebox, paused, and swiftly put them back. Now, how was he supposed to get the tinder going when it was drizzling? That was one thing Amra, with all her cleverness, hadn't thought of. Fool, he whispered to himself. I'm the fool. And the next moment he was removing his coat and putting the flint and steel and box under its protecting cover. He couldn't see what he was doing, but if he held the tinder close enough, a spark should fall on it. Then he'd have a flame hot enough to touch off the fuse of the flare. Again he froze. His enemies were waiting for him to reveal himself through noise. What better giveaway than flint scraping against steel? 
and what about the sound of the rocket flare spiked support being driven into the wooden floor? He suppressed a groan. No matter what he did, he was leaving himself wide open. It was then that the shrillness of a whistle below startled him. He rose, wondering frenziedly what he should do next. So convinced was he that Esger and Grizut were poised just outside the nest, he could not believe that Amra had not misjudged the time it had taken them to climb to him, or she had not been held up for some reason and now was frantically trying to warn him. But he realized he couldn't just stand there like a scared sheep. Whether Amra was right or not, whether they were within Dagger's thrust or not, he had to take action. "'Do your damnedest!' he growled at whatever might be in the dark, and he struck steel against Flint. The materials were under his coat, blocking his view, but he lay down again so he could see between his arms and under the coat held over them. The tinder caught at once and blazed up, then began a small but steady glow in the harder wood of the box. Without waiting to look around, Green rammed the flare's spike into the deck of the nest. Swiftly, he brought the punk up, still holding the coat over it for protection from the drizzle and also from any watching eyes. He held it against the fuse, saw the cord catch flame, and sizzle like a frying worm. Then he had ducked under the other side of the mast that supported the nest, for he knew how unpredictable these primitive rockets were. Like as not, it would go off in his face. Hardly had he rounded the big pillar of the mast when he heard a soft whooshing sound. He looked up just in time to see the rocket explode in a white glare. The moment it dispelled the darkness, he jerked his head to the right and left in an effort to see if Ezker and Grizut were on him, as he'd known they must be. But they weren't. They were still half a ship's length away from him, caught by the light in the rigging, like flies in a spider's web. What he had thought was a finger poking him in the back must have been the bolt that held the support for the muskets, which were to be fired from the nest during combat. So relieved was he, he would have broken into loud laughter. But at that moment a great cry broke from the decks below. The mate and helmsman were shouting in alarm. Green looked down, saw them pointing, and his gaze followed the direction of their extended fingers. A hundred yards ahead, rushing at them at a collision course, was a towering clump of trees. End of chapters 13 through 15